Now I'm going to read this morning from First Peter. It's not a very Advent sermon, but I wanted to to finish off this this book, so that's where we're going to go today, and that'll be us finished in First Peter, and we'll begin reading from verse eight, and we read, "Be controlled and alert." Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet each one of them with a kiss of love. Peace be to all of you who are in Jesus Christ. And then I'll just read a few verses from the end of Ephesians, well-known verses from Ephesians 6, verse 10, where there, this time Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, Put on the armour of God so that you can stand, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the word of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit, on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. We thank God for his word. Let's just come and pray. Father, we pray again that as we realize once more the enemies that we face, that you'll open our hearts and minds to understand the resources that we have to defeat these powers that scheme against us. Lord, help us to have understanding of your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said this morning, we finished this series on First Peter by looking here at his last words to this group of churches that he's writing to. And as is the case with most of us, Peter wants his his last words to count because he's got important things that he wants to say in these concluding comments. 
as well, of course, as the usual courtesies that he shares. Now, it's these important things that are actually going to take up, rightly, by far the bulk of our time this morning. But before we turn to concentrate on this, on these things, let me just clarify maybe one or two things that need to be clarified about these courteous closing words of Peter. And that is, first when Peter adds to his greeting, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. Well, I think that we can take it that this is a coded, symbolic greeting from the church in Rome. For there is plenty of evidence from outside the New Testament, particularly found in the writings of those who talk about the martyrdom of Peter, that Peter was in Rome, that he was unsettled in Rome at the time this letter was written. And within the New Testament itself, well, Babylon is used in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Revelation, as a kind of alias for Rome. For just as in the Old Testament times, Babylon was at the centre of worldly power and of opposition to God, well, so in New Testament times, Rome takes up the same kind of position. The other point that some maybe would want clarified is, is verse 14, where it says, in some versions, greet one another, that's the typical, with a holy kiss. In others, here I think it says, with a kiss of love. Because while some might think that that sounds good, others might find that just plain scary and terrifying. So let me say, first of all, that there's an obvious kind of cultural and historical dimension here to this, that this was their custom at that time. Just as now, say, in, in France or Italy and in, in Russia, people readily, regularly kiss one another just as a greeting. You often see men kissing one another on the cheek and giving as much thought to it, being as much significance as us saying hello to each other. However, I want to make it clear, this is not our custom. It's not part of our culture. Hang back, men. Hang back from me. And I think if we were just to introduce this on a, a kind of wide scale, kind of widespread level, to do literally what it says here, what Peter's talking about, well, I think that there would be at least a, a few eyebrows raised, and it maybe raised certain barriers in our evangelism. People out in the world around that we live in wouldn't wouldn't, would find that difficult to understand. But stripping all this away, the custom of their age and of our age, of other cultures and of our cultures, then, then what's Peter saying here? What's he, he getting at? That there is a benefit, this is what he's saying, in physical expressions of friendship and fellowship in Christ, of our shared fellowship in Christ. And so James Phillips paraphrased that, that tries, attempts to bring this up to date, give each other a handshake all round. I don't think that that really goes far enough because it's too much our culture. It's too distant, too formal. Better, I think, would be something along the lines of greet one another with a holy hug. And while this maybe isn't something that all of us would feel particularly comfortable about, and it shouldn't be forced upon people. We've got to be sensitive in this kind of area. 
You, you can see, I, I hope, the advantages in this. Because unless we are total hypocrites, it's hard to hug somebody if we haven't dealt with the difficulties that maybe exist between us. The unforgiveness, perhaps, in our own hearts. And if we were giving out holy hugs, could anybody then say that they hadn't felt welcome at church? Just a thought. But let's move on now, though, to, to look at these important things that I believe Peter tells us here in these closing words. And first, beginning by looking at the vital warning in verse 8 and 9. I take it the notes are they coming up, Paul. Ah, oh dear. There's a warning. Get them up next time. Okay. The vital warning, verse 8 and 9. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. Well, as I see it, there are two really key words here that sum up much of what Peter is so desperately trying to say to, to warn these churches, churches who he knows this is vital for because they are soon going to face fierce persecution and suffering. And the first word, key word, is recognised. Recognise, to start with, the nature of the spiritual conflict you're involved in. For you see the, the phrase that's translated, be self-controlled and alert in the NIV. What that basically means, in the context that, it, that it's actually set in here, is in the circumstances of our lives. And certainly the share of, of hardship and of suffering that will inevitably come our way in life. In this, let us seek to be spiritually on guard, to be spiritually discerning, to be sound in judgment, that we might then be able to see beneath the mere physical nature and details of our circumstances, to see behind them, beneath them, the spiritual conflict that's actually going on. To see what, what Satan and the Lord are seeking to and would in very different ways want to achieve in our lives by our reaction to these circumstances. And then let's make sure that Satan and the forces of evil seeking to exploit the weakness intended to sin that's always there the, the, the move against God to turn us against God that's there in our hearts, let's make sure in these circumstances that Satan does not have his way in our lives. And you know, again here, as was the case in, in much of what we looked at earlier in this chapter, last week certainly, again, what Peter says here, I believe, was born out of the pain of his own experience. Because you see, the word that's translated alert, be alert, this word is exactly the same word as was used by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When just prior to Satan's great final attack at the cross, Jesus exhorted Peter to watch. That is, to be alert and pray. 
to stand with him then in prayer. That Peter might be able to see, that he might be able to discern Satan's plan and then find strength from the Lord that in this he might not be overwhelmed. But of course, as we know, Peter failed to do this. He failed to respond to Jesus' plea. And so he was overwhelmed by the simple physical circumstances of the cross and he failed Jesus miserably all because he wasn't spiritually tuned in to God because he wasn't spiritually alert watchful and discerning and so he was unable to see the spiritual significance the unique spiritual significance behind the physical of what was going on there of what happened there at the cross but you know how it must have hurt Peter as he wrote these words or dictated them, to remember and to share that memory. But he did it. He did it for the sake of the people of God, for the sake of people like you and me, that we might not fall as he fell. So it pains me then to share some words that I came across <clears throat> as I was studying this passage. And that is that the opposite of this sober watchfulness is a kind of spiritual drowsiness in which one sees and responds to situations no differently to unbelievers and where God's perspective on each event is seldom if ever considered for I have to say as, as I read this I thought you know that's more typical of the church of today that's more typical of my life than spiritual watchfulness, discernment and soundness of judgment. For many Christians do seem just to see and judge and react to things very much on that surface level, just as non-Christians do. For example, we see people who annoy us or upset us simply as nuisances and irritants. You know, if she smiled, her face, would, her face would crack. If they were to be polite for once, it might kill them. You see, what so often we fail to do is to think of what's going on under the surface. Think maybe of the circumstances, the different incidents in that person's life that have maybe contributed to make them the person that they are. And you know, if we did this, Perhaps we then would be able, instead of reacting to them, able to respond to them with a love that would begin the process of transformation in their life. Plus, what we almost invariably, I think, fail to consider is that maybe as God has brought that person into my life. Maybe God has brought these circumstances into my life. Not just so that we might perhaps be used in their transformation, but also for our sakes. Maybe we need to grow in patience, in love, in forgiveness, in mercy and compassion. And so God has brought these circumstances, brought this person into my life for a purpose. We need one another. It's no accident that we've been brought 
together. Excuse me. And when we then find ourselves in tough circumstances, when we find ourselves going through a difficult period, well, so many of us, so often we, we throw our hands up in the air, don't we? We just despair. Or we get angry and annoyed, annoyed at the people that are doing it, annoyed at the God that's letting it happen. What too frequently we don't even think of doing is what we should do. Ask the question. Ask the question. At least ask the question. Has the Lord allowed this to happen in my life? Has he even maybe caused this to happen for a purpose? Are there things that God wants to teach me through this? Does God want to deepen me spiritually? Are there things that I need to learn from this before I'm going to press on to greater spiritual maturity? But not only do we have to recognize the nature of the conflict that we're in, to stop living life at a superficial level, not only that, no, as well as that, we've also got to recognize, I believe, the nature of the enemy that we face. The devil, Satan, the evil one, so many names, here described as the one who comes like a roaring lion. That's a very vivid description that captures so much of, of Satan's essential nature and his accompanying tactics, that he's always on the prowl. He's always prodding about, looking for areas of weakness and looking to attack us when we least expect it. And then attacking suddenly and viciously, overwhelming us, if he can, by the ferocity of his attack. But you know, this is only one of the titles that the Bible gives to Satan. There are a significant number of others that help us further just to understand who he is, how he works, what he's about in our life. For example, he's the angel of light. He's the one who works through false teaching and false prophets, seeking by twisting and distorting the gospel to infiltrate into the heart of the church and God's people and destroy them. He's the father of lies. He's the one then who will cause you, if he can, to doubt God's word, to question God's love, to distrust God's providence, to disbelieve in God's faithfulness. He's the murderer from the beginning. He's the one who's always out then to destroy God's people, to destroy God's church by whatever way he can. He is the slanderer and accuser. He's the one who seeks to maintain over us just an ongoing, intolerable sense of guilt and condemnation, but about things that God has forgotten and forgiven. He's the one who will make Christian, mistrust Christian, always suspecting the worst instead of continually persevering and believing the best. And he is the serpent, skilled in subtlety and disguise, so that most of the most powerful temptations that we face in life come suddenly and from the least expected sources. Now we could here go on and on, but I think that's sufficient, I hope it is, to help us to see that in Satan we face an immensely powerful and resourceful spiritual enemy. But Warren Wearsby, I've mentioned them before, but he's great at these little stories, he tells a story that I think helps to just open up a bit more practically what all of this should mean. 
For he tells us that since I have no mechanical ability, I can admire people who build and repair things. It's funny how many pastors that's true of. But anyway, he says that during a church building program, I was watching an electrician install a complex control panel. I said to the man, it just amazes me how you fellows can calmly work on these lines with all of that power there. How do you do it? The electrician smiled and said, well, the first thing you have to do is respect it. Then you can handle it. You see, that's the kind of attitude towards the devil that I believe that we should have, that a right understanding of his nature will lead us to. Rather than those two opposite errors of either ignoring him, of disinterest, or of being consumed with him, being besotted by interest in the evil one. Because both of these can have disastrous consequences in our lives. The one with our guard down leaves us wide open to the devil's attack. The other, when our attention is, is focused on him, is focused on the evil one, well, that is an affront to God's glory and leads us so often to doubt as we're, the devil becomes so big in our mind to doubt in God's power. Now, the right attitude for a Christian to have is respect, healthy respect for one who is a very powerful enemy and yet who we have the victory over in Jesus Christ. But what should this respect mean in practical terms in our lives? Well, that brings us on to the second key word in this vital warning of Peter here, and that is resistance. That we should resist the enemy. Verse 9. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Somebody's trying to break in, that's unusual. Anyway, and nowhere, nowhere is it made clearer how we can resist the devil. What this means, nowhere is that made clearer than in the famous armor of God section in Ephesians 6. Because there in Ephesians 6, in that famous passage, we're told that our protection is the complete armour of God that God has provided for us and that our weapons, our offensive weapons, are the Word of God and prayer. Now, you know, you sometimes hear some pretty fanciful things said, some wild methods suggested for taking on Satan. I've heard a, a, a numerous, a, a innumerable amount. But I, I say to you, remember instead what it says in the Word of God here. That our main weapons as we take on Satan are the Word of God, confronting him then with God's truth, and prayer, drawing on God's power. It's not in our strength. It's not by methods or rigmaroles that we dream up, even though at times they can maybe seem to have a kind of contrived basis in God's Word. No, our main method of resistance is by the word of God and prayer. And please, I want to say here, let, let's understand, as is made, I think, clear here and elsewhere in the New Testament, as Christians, 
we will come under attack from Satan. And as there are areas of our life that are weakness in our life that are left undealt with, as they're there or the sin that we willingly walk into, well then so Satan's attacks will be all the stronger. Now you see, an important thing here is because Satan's not like God, he's not able to be everywhere and anywhere all at the same time, he's not, to put it technically, omnipresent. Because of that, well so, in the main, Satan's methods of attack against us is by demons. That's his main means of attack, by demons. That is spiritual beings who have fallen under evil control. Now, a big area of debate among Christians over recent years has been whether a Christian can be oppressed, that is whether they can come under demonic attack, or whether a Christian can actually be possessed, whether they can again come under demonic control. Now, I actually don't like either of these labels, but I want to say, make it clear, I'm absolutely against possession of a Christian. Absolutely, because that, what that's talking about, it's talking about Satan taking control again. It's talking about Satan exercising lordship in a Christian's life. But you see, to do that, he would have to overturn the lordship of Jesus, who is the Christian's lord. And you know, the implications of that, if you think them through, of Satan having that kind of potential, Satan having that kind of power, are just too awful and enormous to even contemplate. But what's more important is that they are also not worth worrying about because the Bible nowhere in any part gives Satan that kind of power. But I don't like either of these because I, I think that those terms give the impression that satanic attack is maybe something that's occasionally known by more or less a certain group of Christians. I don't believe that's so. I believe that all of us as Christians are constantly in the midst of a spiritual war. Whether we realize it or not, it's happening. And it's a war, it's a conflict where the devil and his minions, those demons, and this is my preferred term, are constantly, continually seeking to influence us, to gain influence in our lives. Now, in some Christians, the degree of influence Satan is able to have is minimal because the people who trust in God's word and who give prayer a priority. But in the lives of others who don't have these priorities, in the lives of others where there are maybe areas of hurt left undealt with, where there are grievances that are left to fester, where there's an unforgiving spirit that's not faced up to and dealt with, or maybe when we embrace again, knowingly, enthusiastically, when we embrace again a life where sin is our pattern. Well, these kind of things, these leave doors open in our lives for the devil to enter in by. And when we do that, well, then the devil can and will exhort an influence in our lives on a sliding scale, I think right up to the verge of possession. But what we need to learn and get hold of though and never let go is that this can be reversed. The devil can always be turned back by a Christian. 
The, day, the way we are today need not be the way we are tomorrow. We can resist the devil. We can make him and his legions flee. We can by the word of God and in prayer. We can. We have the victory in Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God for that victory. We'll close at this point. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the lessons that we can learn through this book of Peter. And Lord, especially what he teaches us in these final verses about the nature of spiritual conflict and of the victory that's ours in Jesus, that we can resist the devil. He is like that lion that prowls, looking for weaknesses, looking for areas that we've let the powers of evil enter in again. He's there. He wants to exploit that. He wants to divide the church. He wants to pull us down spiritually. But Lord, through your word and in prayer, that victory is ours in Jesus Christ. And for that victory, we give you our thanks now. In Jesus' name, amen.